Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today is Alan Robson. Alan is Senior Elder at the Swansea Seventh-day Adventist Church in New South Wales. Alan has been a stockman, a cane cutter, a property owner, a manual arts, commerce and agriculture teacher and farm manager in Papua New Guinea and a maintenance supervisor. Alan has some amazing stories of God's providences in his life. Alan is going to relate some of these stories today. After the break, I'll be talking with Alan about his early life and spiritual journey. Hello, Alan, and welcome to Life Learnings. Uh, thank you, Barry. It's good to be here. Alan, tell me about the narrow escape from injury you had while riding your motorbike in Sydney. It was in the 1970s, after you returned from working in Papua New Guinea. I was living in uh, Warunga, and I was doing a course on scuba diving. I'd been down to Manly for a, a theory lesson and it finished reasonably late in the afternoon, a Sunday afternoon. I'd come up Military Road onto the Pacific Highway. I'd travelled past um, North Shore Hospital. It was drizzling rain, the street lights were on and my, the lights on my motorbike weren't all that bright either. And uh, there was water on the visor of my helmet. I couldn't see all that well. So I slowed down to about 40 k's. The speed limit was 60. And I was travelling around about 40. And I was in the left lane, as close to the um, left line as I could be. And cars were going past me in both lanes. So I was travelling along there. And a thought came into my mind, watch out, somebody might open a car door in front of you. Because there were cars um, parked in the uh, breakdown lane. We were, I was approaching Gordon, the suburb of Gordon, when um, I had this thought. I turned a corner in the street and there were about six or seven cars parked on, on the side of the road. I'd passed about three of them when I noticed the... Uh, interior light of one of the cars in front of me came on and I could see a reflection of the door from my headlight and I only had time to draw a deep breath as I believed I was going to run into that door and uh, come off the bike. We come up to the door, I believe my front wheel passed the door and the bike leant over to the right and then as I went past the door, I felt the, my trousers leg um, brush the door and then the bike stood up again. Now, I did not tip the bike over. I did not stand it up. Uh, it wasn't until I was a kilometre down the road because I realised that uh, someone else had tipped the bike over for me. And I praise God for that. Hmm. Alan, this wasn't the only narrow escape from injury you've experienced in your life. Tell me about the jeep rollover that you survived unhurt when you were a teenage cowboy, working about an hour's drive from Julia Creek in western Queensland. Yeah, I was working on a uh, cattle sheep station. I was a the cowboy there. The, my job was to um, bring in the milking cows every day and uh, milk them in the morning. I'd bring them in in the afternoon and put them in the yard, separate them from the calves, and then in the morning I would milk them and get as much milk as I could from them. 
Uh, also, I had to feed the fowls and collect the eggs and mow the lawn around the homestead and any other uh, odd jobs that were needed to be done. Uh, oh, I also had a vegetable garden to look after. Um, the manager of the property and his wife and children went to Townsville uh, for a couple of weeks on a holiday. I think it was school holidays at the time. And left uh, just myself and another man. He was in his 40s and I was about 17 at the time. When um, for two nights running, a dingo had come and was howling around the uh, homestead. And so the other man decided we should put up some uh, or put out some uh, traps to try and get this dingo. So we took one of the female dogs the property had and um, got into the old Willie's Jeep, army uh, supplied one, and drove about three mile away from the homestead and tied the dog up to a, a bush and set about six traps in a circle around her. The idea was that uh, she would howl because no one was around and probably it attracted Ingo. And on our way home, after setting the traps and uh, leaving the dog behind, we were about halfway home when the, we noticed the um, children's Pomeranian dog was running down the road towards us. And uh, the other man said to me, call, whistle the dog up. And so I had my feet up on, on the dashboard of the, um, the Jeep. I leaned over the side to whistle the dog and suddenly um, the driver lost control. The, the steering wheel of the car, you could turn it from or half a turn before you'd gauge the other side. It was really worn out. Well, we hit the uh, drain and uh, flew up in the air and we rolled over. Now, between us there was a toolbox and uh, when the, all the crashing stopped and it was silent, I was found myself kneeling on the ground with my head almost between my knees. My shoulders were up against the backrest of the seat and I looked out on to my side of the door and there was only about a six-inch gap uh, between the dirt and the, the door. And I had a weight on my shoulder, my right shoulder, uh, I felt the other driver, the driver, wriggle and get out of the car or the jeep, and then he stood up and said, "Where was?" Called my name, and I said, "I'm stuck." And he started to panic, and I wriggled around a bit, and the toolbox that was between us now fell down and uh, down to my side, and so I was now free to move, and so I crawled out the way that he got out. And so uh, when we examined the, uh, the vehicle, because it was a canvas um, hood with the wooden struts, they were crushed. There was a, an old army um, ammunition box, I think it was. It was about half a metre long and about um, oh, 30, 35 centimetres wide and about 200 centimetres thick or high, and it had landed on its edge as the vehicle tipped over, 
and the back mudguard of the jeep had landed on top of it. So that held the vehicle up off him and off me too. And so we both got out and, uh, without being scratched. We walked home and the next day we'd come back with the, the uh, station truck and um, pulled the jeep back onto its wheels and dragged it home. So Alan, looking back on that experience now, you wouldn't see that as a coincidence, would you? No. Uh, it was fortunate that the toolbox had, was there and that it landed in the right position. Now, I think that God was looking after me even though I didn't know him. Mm. He, he knew me. I didn't know him. Mm. Now, moving on a little bit, soon after you were employed as a stockman on a cattle station near Charters Towers, tell me about the two incidents from that time that stand out in your memory. Well, that was about two years after the car in, uh, the Jeep incident. I changed um, jobs. I was working as a stockman now. Um, the head stockman, myself and the owner of the uh, property were out mustering. We were living in a hut about 10 miles from the main homestead and um, we were mustered a paddock, got the cows into the yards. Now the owner wanted to separate some of the cows out and somebody's getting ready for sale. The head stockman and I were pushing the cows up from the big yard in into a smaller yard and from that yard into a, a, a crush or a race and uh, the boss was there with um, a couple of gates that he could open and direct the cows coming along the uh, which way he wanted them to go. Now there was two small yards that he was directing the cows into. Uh, one yard was the cows that he wanted to take away. One cow, one yard was the yard that the neighbours' cows would go in if there had been any and straight forward was into the dip and the cows would be dipped and um, eventually released back to the paddock they came from. Now, a cow got uh, managed to push through the gate and got into the wrong uh, yard. Uh, fortunately, there were no other cows in that yard, which was the, the yard that the uh, neighbours' cows were to go in if there was any. Uh, it was a black poly cow and had come down from um, Northern Territory. Now, the head stockman had told me, watch out for those black polies. Uh, they'll charge you, they'll bite you, and then they'll kick you. And so this black poly cow somehow pushed past the boss and got into this wrong yard, uh, this yard, but she was supposed to go into the dip and back to the paddock. So we had to get her out. <coughs> So we blocked the um, yard of the race off so no other cows could come through. And the boss opened the gate to get her back into the race. And we climbed down into the yard with this cow and got behind her where she, well, got between her and the, uh, the back of the, the yard. And uh, we had to turn her around and run her out through the gate. Now the head stockman got down. He was near the fence. He had his stock whip in his hand. The boss climbed down after him and he was about two, three metres away from um, the head stockman. He had a big stick. I had nothing. I looked around. There wasn't a thing. My whip was up over with my horse and and so I was, I was a couple of metres away from the boss. Um, 
and we walked towards the cow, and she was facing us. And as we got about oh, four metres away from her, five metres maybe, she tossed her head and she charged me. I saw it coming and I weighed it, and just as before she reached me, I stepped to one side. Uh, she didn't bunt me with her head, didn't bite me, but she knocked me with her shoulder, and I went flat on my back and bumped my head and knocked myself out. When I came to, um, as I was coming to, I heard this head stockman saying, oh, he's, he's okay, his eyes are fl uh, flickering, blinking, and I sat up and looked around. The cow was out of the yard, so the, they must have chased her out while I was laying out to it on the yard. Um, it took a while for me to recover from that. Um, I used to get headaches late in the afternoon. Uh, I guess I had concussion as well. Mm. And that's not the only one you're going to tell us about today either. Or, uh, yes. Uh, a few days later, we were out mustering another paddock to do the same type of work we were doing. It was early in the morning. I caught the, uh, my horse, saddled it up, rode it around the yard. It bucked a bit, but not much. Um, didn't throw me. And we rode out about two miles out to where the um, other paddock was. We came to the gate. I'd never been in this paddock before. And being the youngest, cause I got off my horse, opened the gate, led my horse through, let the others through, closed the gate behind them, turned my horse around and uh, mounted. Well, my horse started to run after the the other two horses and I didn't have my foot in the stirrup yet and then it started to buck. Uh, I yelled out, look out, and the uh, horse started to buck around and um, there had been a tree cut down and cut up for a fence post. And the person who did that had um, cut down all the branches so they wouldn't be a danger to any cattle. And uh, all the branches were laying down on the, on the ground. And the horse started to buck over these branches. And I was thinking, I don't want to fall off on these branches. And next thing I know, I'm looking under the horse's neck. I had, of course, I didn't have my right foot in the uh, stirrup. And I had no way to balance myself that way. And I braced myself to hit the hit the ground and uh, probably land on one of these branches and break a rib or something. Next thing I knew, I'm sitting back in the saddle and the horse stopped bucking. Again, I think that I don't know how I got back into the saddle. I was so far out. It was virtually impossible for me to get back in. And so I'm, I'm praising God that... Uh, Somehow he got me back in the saddle and stopped the horse bucking. Uh, the boss commented to me, he said, next time that happens, don't sing, don't sing out, look out, sing out, um, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, he didn't make any comment about how, how close I was to being on the ground. Yeah, so there's a clear pattern emerging from your stories, Alan, that someone's looking after you. I believe so, yes. Yes, and we're going to uh, see some more of that soon. Now, as a young man, you won a land ballot and became the owner of a 
nine-acre property. Tell me about that. Yes, well, when I finished working the cattle station, I came home to my parents' place and I was there for a couple of months. It was the wet season, so there wasn't any work out in the stations. And uh, a friend of mine who worked in the lands office told me that there was a ballot for a block of land going about more 50 kilometres away from my parents' place and down towards Mission Beach. And uh, he suggested that I put my name down for it. So my father and I went down and had a look at the property and decided we'd have a go at it. And so we went into the lands office and registered and put down a deposit. And a week or so later, we went in to see this ballot. Now, they had a little wooden box there with a, a lid and a hole on the top. And there was about 12 of us there who were having a go at getting this land. And so um, they called out your name. They had a marble with a, a number on it, and that marble number was put beside your name. And so they drew the names out in, in uh, that way. And so you got your number, and they shook the box around and rattled the no marbles around and then had a stick with a grab on the end of it. They poked that down and came up and had my marble on it. And so I got the land. Mm. I had to pay so much a year for 30 years. Now, you went cane cutting during the harvest season to earn money to support yourself and to develop your property. Describe what it was like to cut cane at that time. Yes, well, I had to use, had to build a hut on the property and I had to have a vehicle to travel, you know, around. And so having used up most of my savings doing that, I had to go cane cutting. So I went cane cutting on a farm that only had two workers, two cutters, and um, I had my 21st birthday um, cutting cane and actually I, re I was loading a uh, cane onto a, a wagon when I realised I was turned 21 that day. Uh, yes, we could, um, we'd had to burn the cane that we were going to cut for the next day and then we'd cut um, all afternoon and then in the mo next morning we would load the cane that we had cut onto this, these wagons, a truck would come in and take the cane off to the mill. So we were cutting by hand, and it was, you were bent over most of the time, and uh, yeah. I imagine, was, you would have, I imagine you would have been pretty fit at the time, Alan. Yes, after about three weeks, um, you started to get, all the aches and pains would go, your hands would start to um, toughen up, uh, I used to put a sock over my hand and hold it so my fingers could go through, and that stopped me getting blisters on the palm of my hand from the knife. Hmm. Alan, you also joined the Citizens Military Force at this time. What was your motivation for doing this? Uh, listening to the news, there was a lot of uh, political and problems going on in Europe and Asia, and it, sometimes it looked like war, the... I still remember the Korean War had been a few years earlier, and so it looked like war was going to break out somewhere soon. 
and if Australia was going to be involved, I didn't want to be um, caught untrained. Uh, so um, I decided I'd join the Citizens Military Force, or I think they call it the Reserved Army today. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds like you were pretty busy around this time. What happened to the property? Well, during the cutting season, I only worked on the property during the Saturdays and Sundays when you were... Cane cutters weren't allowed to cut cane on Saturday or or Sunday. It was against the law. We could burn on Sunday afternoon, uh, so we could work on Monday, but uh, we could not uh, work or cut cane on Saturday or Sunday. So with your property, um, I think you actually um, sold it eventually, didn't you? Oh, yes, several. I had it for eight years. No, nine years. Yes, I sold it um, after I went to college. So we're going to come to that in a moment. But you were baptised in 1964, the year after your parents were baptised. You became a Seventh-day Adventist. Tell me about that and how it changed your life. Well, I was um, cane-cutting that uh, 1963, and I hadn't seen my parents for four or five months. And... um, Yes, we started cutting in June, and it was in December. Oh no, November, when I came to see my parents. We'd finished cutting for the week early one Friday, and so I went home to see my parents. And my mother told us told me that they were getting baptised the following week. It was a, a jaw dropping experience for me to realise that they were studying the Bible. Um, Okay, the next year I was working with uh, cutting again, but not by hand. This time I was working on a machine. And um, I'd come home, well, during the off-season, I'd come home on Tuesdays and um, go to the CMF uh, stay overnight with my parents, then on Wednesday I'd um, get all my supplies for the week and go back to my property and start clearing more land or putting up another fence. And then the following Monday, Tuesday I would come back and my mother would have washed my uniform at that time and I would take my uniform and iron it. And while I was ironing it, my father would come and sit down beside me uh, me and he would tell me what he had learned from the Bible and what the, he believed, and it got me so interested. I went and uh, bought myself a Bible and started uh, reading it. And after three months, I decided I should go to church too. So it changed my life. It changed my outlook on what the world events were leading up to. I realised God was in control. And I didn't have to worry about uh, defending my country myself. He would defend it somehow. Hmm. Now, you went to Avondale College in, uh, or before the 1968 academic year to study building construction. Yep. And then you managed to do the mature age test and you changed your course to manual arts teaching. Tell me about this time in your life. Well... <laughs> I was um, made a deacon in the church and on this particular day my 
duty for the day was to see the minister, get the hymn numbers off him and put the hymn numbers up and to collect the offering. I'd seen the um, minister, I'd got his numbers, I'd put the numbers up and I was walking back to my seat when my one of my cane-cutting friends walked down the aisle and we met in the, in the middle of the church, shook hands and he said to me he was planning to go to Avondale College and before I could think, my, vo- my mouth opened and said, I'm planning to go too. And my ears couldn't believe what I'd said. I hadn't planned, but I hadn't thought about it. And he said to me, well, I've got a, picked up a book on the way through and it tells you all about the courses they, um, they offered there. I'll bring it along next week and I'll give it to you. And so he did that. And I looked through the book and there was only one course I could do that um, I didn't need matriculation and that was the building construction course and it seemed like it suited somebody off the farm and who was going back to the farm, uh, the course that he should do. And so I applied for that and I was accepted and so I thought, now I'm a country boy, I don't know, never been into a big city, Uh, I'd only travelled through um, Townsville twice, I'd been to Cairns once and so I was a small town boy. I thought I'd better go down there and get the lay of the land down there, learn where all the classrooms are and etc. And so um, I wrote to them, told them I was coming down early and they didn't write back and discouraged me from going so I went. I talked to the church uh, pastor at the time and uh, he arranged that he and his wife and two children would, would go down, were going down that way and they would take me with them. And so uh, we went down together and he dropped me off at college. They gave me a job and so I settled in. I was there about six weeks before college opened. Alan, in 1973, you were appointed manual arts and agriculture teacher at Kambubu High School on the island of New Britain in Papua New Guinea. What led to this appointment? Well, I, I'd finished the manual arts teacher's course and uh, I applied for a job and our men from the headquarters of the church had come up to the college and they interviewed all those who were finishing up that year and... Um, they asked me if I would be willing to go to New Guinea, and I said yes. And so about October, they did the appointments, and I got the news that I was being appointed to Kambubu, and it lifted a big burden off my mind because I'd sold my farm, and I had no idea what I would do if I wasn't appointed. Yeah, it was a great feeling. So coming from North Queensland, which is tropical, I imagine you wouldn't have had all that much difficulty in just making the transition to Kambubu? It was almost like home. The climate was the same. The trees, many of the trees were the same as what I was used to. Yeah, it was like home. And you're a single man at this time. Yes. And you had a pretty heavy workload. How did you manage to keep it all together? Well, each staff member could have a student uh, do some manual work around the house and so I had a a boy 
who would mow the lawn or cut the lawn and cook my evening meal. Uh, he often cooked it twice as much as I needed, so I had to put it there, half of it in the fridge for the next day. <laughs> yeah, so, no, it was quite good. Now, you had a motorbike accident at Camberwell High School. Tell me what happened there. Uh, right, yes. Well, coming from Rabaul down to Kambubu was about 40 miles, which would be about, what, uh, 50 kilometres, 55 kilometres. And to get to Kambubu, you had to cross three rivers. And so the road went for about another 30 kilometres past uh, the school. There was coconut plantations, copper plantations on the way down. And so this afternoon... Uh, four of us decided we would um, we would ride down the end of the road just for the fun of seeing what was down there. And so we each of us had a motorbike. Two of the men had uh, new one hundred cc motorbikes. I had an eighty cc. The other man had an old, very old one hundred cc motorbike, but it wasn't very fast at all. And so we rode down past the last plantation, came to the end of the road, and then we followed a walking track up over a hill and along a bit and came to a native village. And we, and the natives knew where Kambubu was. They used to come down to our uh, clinic and dispensary to get um, medical aid. And so we talked with them for a while and then we turned around and came back. Now the road here was a, a two-track road, two wheel tracks. Now, the two men with the bigger bikes uh, went first and they roared off and left us behind, my, the other friend and I, and we were in wheel track each and going along nicely for several kilometres and then he suddenly dropped back and so I turned around and looked back to see what he was doing and uh, couldn't see him. I looked back where I was going and saw a rock sticking out on the side of the wheel track. And before I could do anything, uh, I, I, I hit the rock with my engine and flew up in the air and came down, landing on my head and shoulder, broke my collarbone and had concussion from that too. My friend uh, stopped, came back to me, and asked if, uh, how I was, and I said, I think I've broken my collarbone, and I was laying on my f uh, stomach. He rolled me over and felt my collarbone, said, yes, you've broken it. And I had a long sleeve shirt on, he rolled that sleeve down and pinned it up onto my top uh, button, and we sat there, we, well, I lay there, and he sat there, and we waited for the others to come back. And they eventually came back and realised we weren't something had happened to us, and we arranged for transport to get uh, to hospital. One man went back to the school and got the uh, school land cruiser, and the other went back to the plantation that we, we were in and, and talked the natives into uh, letting us use a tractor and trailer to transport me towards the school until the truck came back to us which they did, and then when the Land Cruiser arrived, we transferred me from the trailer 
onto the um, uh, the truck or the Land Cruiser, and then uh, away I went. They took me out to the uh, the last river, which is quite deep, and to cross that we had to go in a canoe. And uh, they put me on the canoe, carried me across, and then put me on the ground, and, well, about five minutes later the ambulance arrived, and then I was transported into Nonga Hospital, government hospital just outside of Rebel. They x-rayed me and said, oh, you've got a broken collarbone. And I told him about it. I felt like I had a cut in my head. And he looked at it and said, oh, nothing much. And I said, There's a, my shoulder is aching as well. And he felt my shoulder and said, no, that's all right. You can go home tomorrow. And so I stayed in overnight. And um, one of the teachers had, had followed me in and he stayed in town during the night. And the next morning he took me home. It took me weeks before I could, three weeks before I could raise my arm high enough to ride a motorbike again, and months before I could raise my arm high enough to be able to write on the blackboard. So I used to write with my left hand and got quite good at it too. Um, when I started writing with my right hand, I used to support it with my left hand. Yeah, it took me about six months to get over the concussion I suffered from that um, that incident. We weren't wearing helmets, and so uh, I believe God looked after me again. <laughs> it certainly sounds like it, Alan. You came back to Sydney, where we we talked about the near accident you had in Sydney yep. during the mid seventies. And while you were back here in Australia, you. You uh, worked at the division offices of the Seventh-day Adventist Church as yes. groundsman for a period. You then met and married Pam in 1977 while working there, and then you went back to Kambubu High School in 1979. Right, You yes. were the agriculture teacher and farm manager again, but you also taught commerce rather than manual arts this time. What do you remember most about going back to Kambubu? Well, when we got back there, there was a new house there that hadn't been there before. Uh, I noticed uh, some of the trees were much bigger. Um, they had replaced me with another European teacher to do um, manual arts, and there was also uh, a- another um, national teacher who was doing manual arts as well. So um, because I had the an agricultural background. They kept me in uh, teaching agriculture, but this time I had extra classes. So I was teaching from grade uh, eight to grade ten now. And so, uh, but I, being agriculture alone wasn't enough uh, uh, periods, and they were short of uh, commerce teachers. So I was elected to be. Uh, commerce teachers for grade 7 and grade 8, which is okay because they had uh, their books, was the whole course, what you, the teacher had the book, the students didn't. And so it was everything was set out for you, it was quite easy to uh, teach. Um, So the first couple of years I taught all um, six classes, and towards the end, um, the last two years, and a national teacher teach um, one of the grade seven and one of the grade eights, 
and so uh, I would organise the exams for both classes, but uh, uh, she took over one class and eased me off there. Uh, school would finish at three o'clock and then we would um, go down. Each, each teacher had a work group to work with and so uh, I had the farm and so uh, I had to make sure that we had enough food for the students to eat um, throughout the year. I had to plant two acres of uh, sweet potato and one acre of uh, tapioca a month to keep 450 students fed. Alan, you stayed there for five years. That's correct. Then you came back to Australia. You had several jobs until 1991 when you were offered the job of maintenance supervisor for the Kings Langley Retirement Village. Yes. You held that position for 16 and a half years before your retirement. What was your... What was this period of your life like? Very interesting. Uh, I was virtually my own boss. I had 61 units uh, to look after, 110 people in those units. And so um, uh, people would ring up and say, such and such has gone broke on me, can you come and fix it for me? Or they'd go to the office and let the... um, one of the secretaries know that something had gone wrong and she would make a note of it and let me give it to me. Uh, I would decide when what job was done. And so if I, the job was too difficult for me or wasn't experienced with that job or didn't wasn't qualified, I would bring somebody else, in, a tradesman, in to do that work and I would watch. And so uh, I learned a lot from them. Uh, they expected me to know a lot, and uh, sometimes I didn't know what to do, but I sat down and worked it out and, and did it. I'm Barry Hacker, and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Alan Robson. Alan is a retired maintenance supervisor and is currently the senior elder of the Swansea Seventh-day Adventist Church. I've been talking with Alan about his working life. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Alan about his early life and more about his spiritual journey. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Alan Robson. Alan is a retired maintenance supervisor and is currently the senior elder of the Swansea Seventh-day Adventist Church. I've been talking with Alan about God's providences in his life and his career. 
In the remainder of the program, I'll be talking with Alan about his early life and a little more about his spiritual journey. Alan, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Queensland, North Queensland, the town of Innisfail. And my parents had been, they were born in the same area as well. So what was your early life like? Oh, it was quiet. Um, we lived in about three miles out of town at the mouth of the river, so there's a lot of fishing and swimming and horse riding. There was a, a horse that had been too old to work and the owner had let him go and this horse wandered up and down the roads eating the grass on the side of the roads and us kids would go and catch him with a slice of bread and put a bridle on him and ride him around bareback. Sounds pretty idyllic to me. It was. How did you find school, Alan? Uh, it was okay, depending on the teacher. It had one good teacher and two not so good. <laughs> what did you like? To, what did you like to do outside of um, um, outside of school? Well, it was mostly swimming or fishing or riding horses. So you've always been an outdoors person, from the sounds of it. Yes, yes, my parents were too. Alan, what's one of your strongest memories as a child? When we got a bit old, around 10 and 11, my brother and I were uh, allowed to go and live on a farm, a dairy farm, with uh, my grandparents. And um, we'd go there and we'd spend two or three weeks with them. Uh, we could get on a horse each and go and help uh, bring the cows in for milking every afternoon and help my grandfather milk the cows, bring the cows up, and he'd put, we'd watch him put the machines on the cows, and etc. Yeah, so that was a, a good learning time too. Did religion have any role in your life in those years? Uh, very little. There was a lady who was a church um, goer, she was in a different denomination than uh, Seventh-day Adventist, but she used to go to church regularly, and she uh, got her, the minister of her church to come and run a, um, a Sunday school about not far from the school that I used to attend. We let her, uh, she let everybody in the area know that this was going to go happen, and. Oh, about a dozen or so children turned up to this uh, Sunday school. The minister was uh, a very nice man, very nice. And he was there for about three, four months. When the Christmas break came on, well, it stopped operating. And when school started the next year, he wasn't there. He'd been transferred to some other town. And so it was about a year or so before Another man, this lady was able to arrange for another man to come, but he was nowhere near the um, personality of the first man and it fizzled out after about six weeks. And that's all we ever had. So you didn't have a great deal of religious education in your, in your life? No, not at all. Uh, sometimes uh, some minister would come during a school uh, day and we divide up into different denominations and uh, we'd, a minister would talk to us and etc. but that didn't last long either. 
they'd stop coming. We were only a small school. There's oh, about only 15 or 16 children in the school. That's a small school. There's four classes in one room. Now, what? you left school at 14 years of age. Yes. And you worked on several dairy farms until you were 16. What was life like during those years? It was a learning experience. Um, I've learned a few uh, phrases. Um, I learned a few things. I learned how to build a fence. Uh, I learned the saying, uh, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat, <laughs> meaning there's more than one way to do a certain job. Um, so I still take that, that saying on board. I learned how to ta- uh, replace a, a wheel on a car. I was, I was told once um, the front wheel of that car's coming is going flat all the time, uh, change it. And then he went off. I'd never changed a wheel before, I'd never helped change a wheel before, and I can't remember ever seeing anybody else change a wheel before. So I, I went and found the jack and changed the wheel. So you've always had a practical bent. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you, you're a problem solver, Alan. That's right, yeah. I can do things I hadn't done before. I'd sit down and work it out, and uh, if someone can put it together, I can take it apart, is my motto. So that's your great strength from the sound of it, just yeah. being a very practical individual. Now tell me about um, your own spirituality and experience. Well, when my father started teaching me what uh, he knew about the Bible and um, the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I started reading the Bible. I went and bought my own, and uh, I would read it at night by the light of a kerosene lamp, and I found the things that he was telling me was was true, was in the Bible, and uh, I understood it, and and then I came to the... um, New Testament and started reading about Jesus and his sacrifice and that cut me up. He, he died for me. And so uh, I asked to, for forgiveness and told him I wanted to follow him and uh, I started going to church then and learn more. And um, this friend who was in the church, the Aboriginal man who Gave me, told me he was going to college, but didn't go. But I went instead. He gave me a, a list of, or a little pack of um, cards about the size of a ordinary playing card. It was called Bible Studies for Busy People. And after I was working, I was cane cutting at the time. I would study one of these cards, and it was one of the different doctrines of the church. And I would study the Bible with with these help of these cards, and uh, virtually read myself and studied myself into the church. Hmm. Tell me what difference it really made in your life. Well, I came to the conclusion that God had everything under control. I didn't have to worry about what was happening out the outside world. Really, I couldn't do anything about it, and He had it in control, and so I trusted Him. And uh, looking back, I realised he he was in control and I had every reason to trust him. Now, you've been a practical man throughout your working life. 
What have you learned during your life that you think we should all know? Before I became a Christian, I I used to read a lot of novels. I'd read three novels a week. One of the novels I wrote was written by the author called Frank Clune. Um, And one of... I think the first book I read of his was called uh, Try Anything Once. And he wrote from the time he left school up until the time he uh, wrote wrote the book, um, all the adventures he had trying different jobs. And um, some were successful, some were not so. And I took that um, saying as a, my... Um, uh, what do you call it? aim in life to try anything once not not to give up uh, not to be afraid of trying something new mm-hmm. and I think that's what uh, most people do um, to try something new get out of your comfort zone and trust yeah and I've been trusting God I didn't expect to be a school teacher ever but you ended up doing it and liking it yes Yes, it was, it was rewarding to um, meet students years after they'd left school and uh, tell me what they were doing um, and how it affected them, and not only them, uh, their village too. I used to, because I was growing bananas at one stage, before I, when I um, went down to college, I was growing bananas and I left that behind. And so when I was teaching agriculture, we had a small banana patch at the school and um, I decided we'd increase the size of the banana patch and so I showed the students how to um, plant bananas the Australian style. And their way was to dig up a plant, carry it to their garden, new garden and dig the whole plant and plant it away. 100, kilometer, 100 kilos or more and they'd plant it and a year later they'd get a banana a bunch of bananas from it and I showed them if you dug the plant up cut it off and you could divide the bottom part the corm into five, six pieces and it was much lighter to carry and you got more plants and less effort and you'd get once you planted it you'd get another bunch well if you divide it into four, you'd get four bunches instead of one. And so um, one of the uh, students I saw uh, about five years after, he told me that everybody in his village was planting bananas that way now. And that was a bit of a thrill too. It must have been pretty satisfying to see that yeah. sort of result. Yes. And I guess that that would have uh, happened, it could have happened a hundred times because of the number of students that had passed through that I had taught and uh, how I taught them how to plant bananas. Alan, you would never have imagined, I imagine, that um, at 14 years of age what your life was going to turn out like. Uh, I imagine you would have thought that you'd probably be on the land for the rest of your life. Yes, well, I had two... My my two favourite uncles uh, worked out on stations out western Queensland and... uh, I thought I would follow them and be a stockman all my life, but uh, things changed. So God had other plans for your life, obviously. He certainly did. 
Alan, do you have a favourite Bible passage? Uh, yes, Acts ch- uh, chapter 5, verse 29. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And so that's the way I'm, I'm planning to go. Obedience to God is the first. And where uh, a man's uh, orders do not clash with God's requirements, then that's okay. But if they do clash with God, well, then God comes first. Hmm. Alan, would you pray for our listeners today, perhaps with a special reference to those who have a story like yours? Okay. Heavenly Father, we're here talking about you and your, the way that you've looked after me over the last 75 years. And so we pray, Lord, that as we go through our days, that the people that I meet or heard my story will be encouraged to trust in you as well, and that each one of us has a story, Lord. Each one of us has probably been saved from some catastrophe. We may not have realised, we may have put it down to luck or chance, but really when we think about it and uh, realise that you are in control of everybody's life and that each one of us has a responsibility to you and that if we uh, take that responsibility up and give you the honour and glory then you can look after us even better. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love um, for us to allow him to come to this earth to show us the way and to sacrifice his life and blood for us because of the love that you and he had for us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you'll bless those who are listening, that they too may be lifted up and glorify your name for the rest of this day and for the rest of their lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alan, thank you for relating your stories to me today and for our listeners. They're pretty extraordinary stories, and uh, I really appreciate your willingness to come in and and talk with me. And uh, I hope that someone out there will be encouraged by the stories that you have told today. Well, everybody has stories. Well, that's right. Everyone has a story, and um, I've really appreciated you being prepared to tell us yours. That's fine. No worries. I'm Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Alan Robson. I've been talking with Alan about God's providences in his life. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Until then, bye for now, and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. One of the great invitations of the Bible is found in Matthew 7 and verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. In any time of need we can ask God for help. If we ask in faith, he will hear us. If you are suffering moments of distress or despair, why not ask God to help you? 
Talk to God like you would talk to a friend and tell him your need. May God bless you as you consider this gracious invitation.